from Freie Universität Berlin, I'm Jonas Benz, and this is the Affect and Colonialism podcast. Our global economy is fundamentally governed by colonial logics. The resulting power inequalities, ecological destructions and social corrosions severely impact the daily lives of people. They transform the way they feel about themselves, about others and about the world around them. Today, we talk with artist and writer Bassem Saad about the effective lives of colonial economies. Bassem, welcome. Hello, Jonas. It's a pleasure to be here. Bassem, your work deals with how the economy or economic relations inscribe themselves into the lives of people. And you're from Lebanon. Can you tell us how does the Lebanese economy inscribe itself into the lives of people? Okay, so I think I'll start off by prefacing that Lebanon was never under colonialism in a traditional sense, but it was under the French mandate after being a part of the Ottoman Empire, and which is why I think it affords us a wider conception of continuing colonial logics, such as, for example, in Lebanon in the 19th century, a lot of economies arising out of the endeavors of French colonialists, such as silk economies in Mount Lebanon, tended to replace local economies that existed under the Ottoman Empire. And you could, in a way, think of the Great Famine that occurred in Mount Lebanon in 1916 as long-term result of the replacement of the silk economy. And in a way, there have been many thinkers who have tried to think of The contemporary situation within the long durée of uh, the, the afterlife of colonialism. And if you adhere to a certain, to the logic, such as the one that was advanced by the Lebanese Marxist Mahdi Amel, who theorized the term the colonial mode of production in relation to Lebanon and in other countries, he was using case studies from the Arab world, such as Algeria and Egypt. But he was trying to think of how phenomena such as sectarianism in Lebanon is an example of the continuing logic of colonialism. I mean, for example, I think if you think of the present day situation, currently Lebanon is undergoing, a, is still in the throes of the financial and economic collapse that began in 2019 for following the uprising. And if you look at the economies that are dominant in Lebanon, you will find that the tertiary sector or the service sector is the dominant sector. In a way, Lebanon was never a country that industrialized. There is no heavy industry in the country and most of the, most of the profit is made in the banking sector, the real estate sector, tourism sectors and the service economy which leads to a lot of casualization of work. Most people are employed in very small companies. There isn't really, there was never really um, this dominant industrial worker archetype in Lebanon. Of course, there are, throughout the history, there are many worker strikes in industries and in some factories, but it was never, it never really coalesced, I would say, into a full-on political subjectivity. And that is related in many ways to the sectarian logic. It's difficult to think of 
individuals leaving their sectarian backgrounds. There will always be, even up until the present day, and especially in the present day, they are very much dependent on sectarian welfare economies that tend to compensate for the absence of welfare and other service provisions that are not being provided by the state. So a lot of people, for example, in the absence of 24-hour electricity provision, a lot of people have to rely on either private sector backup generator services, but often more so in the realm of, for example, healthcare. A lot of people rely on sectarian welfare agencies because they do not have public health care provided by the state. So that already points to the fact that these things are not just economic questions that are relevant for the development of a country on a large scale, but that they actually structure how people feel in their everyday life. Is there electricity there? Isn't it there? Structures basically major decisions that you do in everyday life that are very much on the micro level. That is something that you're interested in, right? I mean, I think through my work, I try to explore the impact of whether we're thinking of economic crisis, whether we're thinking of certain modes of labor, I try to explore the manifestation of these larger structural phenomena on the interpersonal and on the social and on sensibility and on ways of seeing the world, ways of interacting with the world and ways of forming a kind of affective or latent knowledge. And so the way I try to do that is often through Whether, through, whether in my film work or in my performance or fictional writing, I try to explore that through dialogue, through the development of, through characterization. So through the development of characters and personalities that attempt to process how these economies affect them and how they structure their own interactions with the world and towards a certain kind of self-reflexiveness that also factors in for their position in the world and how they are imbricated. So when you say that you use characters to display how these large economic forces um, are relevant in people's lives, then you imply probably that there are typical ways of feeling that many people might identify with and see your work and say, yeah, this is something that I know. So you talked about the, the economic downturn in Lebanon since 2019. What kinds of feelings are created in this situation? So my most recent film called Congress of Idling Persons in a way thinks of idleness or a state of torpor or a state of economically you could refer to it as kind of a state of unemployment. But I wanted to look at how these affects and this almost existential state manifested in individuals and characters who are participating in The mobilization and in the street uprisings and how kind of they start to see the uprising or see mobilization as an as a political activity that fills up their time that is not being filled up by productive activity so in a way i wanted to look at the potentials or the kind of the revolutionary fervor that is still present even in states of idleness that state of idleness comes out of the abandonment that is produced by the state. And so I wanted to kind of look at people who are in no way idle or lazy, but are people who are very active 
but how they could be thought of as idle in more traditional or in more economic terms. They are not the homo economicus. They are not producing, but in a way they are, you could say they are producing like extraordinary amounts of knowledge through a certain idleness and through a certain way of engaging with the world. That creates an interesting tension with understandings of the political left in Europe and North America, because there you have this prevalent notion that political subjectivity comes out of an organized workforce. And I think that the political left has also often assumed that outside of the West, particularly with people mainly working in agriculture or in service economies, in service economies, exactly, that, um, that they're... Or not working at all. Not working at all, exactly. That they are not able structurally to develop the kind of political subjectivity that is necessary for revolution. And it sounds as if you are questioning that. There's definitely a kind of questioning of that. I mean, I'm not attempting to create dichotomies between organized and non-organized left, but my own artistic sensibility is geared a bit more towards spontaneity and less organized forms of relationality. And I think they are a bit more underexplored, or at least in the, in the global south, I think it is very interesting to look at what affects and what modes of relation arise out of the systematic attempts by the dominant powers to destroy any kind of organized left and destroy any kind of productive union activity. In Lebanon, most of the unions have been co-opted by sectarian powers. And after the uprising, there was a lot of work towards establishing alternative unions. We could question how successful that was or to what extent those unions are able to gain power. And so in my work, in my film work and also in my writing work, I was interested in both the limitations and the potentials of mass spontaneity and the complete destruction of an organized left. That sounds also like an interesting input to induce also in mainstream discourses the political left has of itself internationally because this kind of economy, let's say that's 19th century economy out of which this theory comes does not exist anymore everywhere, right? Also not in Europe and also not in North America. That is very true. In many ways it is inspiring to witness the current moment in both the global north and the global south. I think there is a lot of work being done towards more organized left. And I think there is a niche segment of younger people, people who are online, people who are not online, who are actively working towards unionizing their workforces. And I think that is invaluable and should hopefully can become more and more dominant in the coming years. But I think staying with the trouble or staying with the, the conditions that we've inherited somehow, there needs to be deeper thinking of the non-organized left. There needs to be more thinking of what is traditionally thought of in Marxist theory and elsewhere as the lumpen proletariat, as the proletariat that has a kind of false consciousness that hasn't been able to organize. I think this remains a very foundational question to any kind of left thinking. You've talked now about idleness as an effective mode which is created through the colonial economy prevalent in Lebanon as you have described it 
But I assume there are also other effective modes that are created in this context, and you have explored those as well, right? I think one other key term that keeps coming up in my work and that has also come up in Congress of Idling Persons is the concept of besiegement or undergoing a state of siege. And I mainly use that to think of the logic of the state. You could say that a lot of states in the global south, or let's not say state, let's say um, political actors who try to position themselves as anti-imperial or against the West, are in no way less regressive than other political actors, but often rely on a kind of besieged mentality. So if you think of the logic of in Lebanon of Hezbollah, of the Syrian regime, of the Iranian regime, the logic used to oppress a population is often that of we are a regime under siege. Therefore, any kind of dissent or any kind of anti-regime activity is portrayed as a betrayal. Dissenters are portrayed as being agents of imperialism. And I think that is often that was often the logic at play in the Arab Spring, in protests of the Arab Spring, in the Lebanese uprising, in the Syrian uprising. I think we saw it most tragically in the Syrian uprising. Often that state of a besieged consciousness within the ruling entity often manifests in actual besiegement of the dissenters. And I think of it as a continuum from protests that are being kettled by the police force or by the militarized police of the state towards more extreme cases, such as, for example, in Syria, towns that were liberated from the control of the regime and were then besieged with supplies being cut off. Besiegement has become for me like a very interesting state and concept that I've been trying to explore in my work poetically and politically and more concretely as well. And the way you describe besiegement is also making clear that this is a quite ambivalent term and very different actor groups can feel this besiegement or mobilize the feeling of besiegement to further their own agendas. And I think that is also something that you implied and that is relating very interestingly, I think, through the theory of colonialism is there are so many levels on which colonial logics are at play And it's not always clear where the colonizers and the colonized are. So there, there's a role switching. You have sometimes authoritarian regimes that use anti-colonial rhetoric to further their agendas, but have very similar politics towards broader populations. You talking about these effectively loaded concepts like besiegement or idleness, is this a way to also capture this ambiguity of these terms and also then of colonialism? For sure. I think it's an attempt at going beyond easier or more facile conceptions of the East-West divide or was thought of as the hegemonic force, was thought of as a counter-hegemon. I think within the left there is always some kind of capitulation, especially in the Western left, towards thinking of actors in the global South as political actors in the global south as inherently anti-imperial. And I think there is a necessary critique of the limits of an anti-imperial politics that becomes very narrow and doesn't extend towards, towards thinking more deeply about realities in the global south. I think within the left, like a very 
prominent anti-war stance does not have to become a regime apologist stance. And I think that is a very important gray area that needs to be very well articulated. You said that one of the artistic ways through which you explore this was the development of characters. For example, in your work, Congress of Idling Persons, there are different characters which also then stand for or through which you explore certain different ways of how these economic logics inscribe themselves into people. Can you tell us a bit more how you use this method of developing characters to do your work? So Congress of Idling Persons, you could say, I mean, it ends up being a kind of film essay and experimental documentary. But I think what I was really interested in is questioning the medium of documentary as well as developing these characters in approaching these friends of mine who were involved in different movements, who are either organizers themselves or people who actively think through their own artistic work, through their own writing about politics and the social. I approached them and I tried with them to develop their own characters on screen. So in a way, we kind of workshopped every individual's performativity. We scripted the roles to different degrees of improvisation. We decided to exaggerate certain aspects, certain affective registers of the characters. Uh, Islam Khatib, who is a Palestinian writer who was in the film, we worked on really exaggerating her character as like this historian in a study room. And we did that with lights, with dress, with her own register. She's reading fully from a teleprompter. And I think an important part of the documentary is there are moments when you can tell that these characters are performing a role and you can see the slippages within that performance. And you get to see this almost incoherence between these persons beyond the documentary and the role that they're trying to portray that is very close, but somehow at an angle from their general way of being in the world. So I feel like that was, for me, a very interesting and necessary way of thinking of documentary and breaking the filmmaker-documentary-subject relation. Because in the end, I am myself a part of doc the documentary through, through the on-screen text that structures the film. That is how it becomes a kind of congress. It's this congress of performativities that are to different degrees of artificiality. I'm wondering, the language that we usually deployed to talk about the economy on economic relations is quite technical, quite impersonal, for many people quite difficult to grasp, difficult to understand. And the way that you tackle these questions in such a personal way, so much focused on even individual people and how they behave and how they, as you said, how they dress, how they look, how they move, how they speak, Is that also a way to make, also to your audiences, to let them experience these sometimes abstract power inequalities that are connected to the economy? Yes, because I think that art should attempt to explore economic conditions, inequalities, injustice. And, but I think a realm that art is really well positioned to tackle is the life of the mind and the life of the mind in response to outside conditions. So in my work, I really try to take that very seriously. And I try to 
develop situations and setups and scenes and dialogues that really explore internal states, states of consciousness, the minutiae of social interactions and relations. I mean, of course, you see your art as, in a way, a critical intervention or something that can be a resource for the critique of colonialism. But I would assume this is also a complicated question. Is there a political agenda, a critical agenda to your art? I mean, I think, I think that's the starting point. Like, for sure, there is a politics to the work. That is never, I never shy away from that. My work is obviously very political and there are often like very explicit political stances within the work made by characters, made by myself, made in certain moments. But there is always and throughout an unexpected, like I try to create scenarios that lead towards some kind of unexpectedness, that lead towards some kind of ambivalence. You could be very clear about a certain politics and then you will find a character in a moment faltering or you will find the character in a moment failing to live up to the politics that they've built for themselves and I think that is very important in works of art and works of literature. That is something I try to look for in the work that I consume and in the work that I try to cultivate and produce. Basim, thank you very much. Thank you.